0: Hey there! Thanks for tuning in to St John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. The first Bible reading is from Deuteronomy 30:11 to 20. Surely, this commandment that I am commanding you today is not that is not too hard for you, nor is it too far away. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will go up to heaven for us and get it for us so that we may hear it and observe it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will cross the other side of of the sea for us and get it for us so that we may hear it and observe it? No, the word is very near very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart for you to, to observe. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God... Then I, that I am commanding you today, by loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways and observing his commandments, decrees, and audience, audiences, then you shall live and become numerous, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you do not hear, but are led astray to bow down to other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall perish, you shall, you shall not live long in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curses. Choose life, so that you may, so that you and your descendants may live, loving, loving, so live, loving the Lord your God, obeying him and holding fast to him for the means for for that means life to you and length of days, so that you may live in the land that the Lord your that the Lord swore to give to your ancestors to Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. The second reading is from Ephesians 4, 1 to 16. Oh, 1 to 6. <laughs> I, therefore, the prisoner of the, in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, There is one body and one spirit, just as you accord to the one hope of your calling. So one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord.
1: So we've set ourselves a difficult task, um, which is to understand what the church is. And we continue in our series uh, on the church. And the reason it's difficult is because we're familiar with communities, Uh, We have various sorts of communities in our world and our experience. You've got the community of your family. Uh, Of course, the key thing about family is you don't get to choose them. You don't get to vote them in or off the island. They're just kind of part of how life is. You have your family. And for better or worse, that's just kind of where life starts and stops. So there's family. We know about uh, uh, business, work. That's a transactional context where you give your labour and they give you money or you give your money and they give you labour if you're a business owner. And that's a transaction. If you don't like it, you go do something else. And if they don't like you, they find you something else to do uh, and help you on your way. Uh, but transactions, we know that's a really lousy way to do relationships. So there's friendships. Friendships are chosen. And that's really great, though, though often, you know, they kind of come and go. It's very rare that you have friends in your 90s who you had in your teens because they come and go. And so we have this other thing which we call a voluntary association. It's another kind of community. We're familiar with it all the time. Uh, Also called a club. You may be a member of a club uh, where you get together to do something that you have a common interest in. I'm a member of a club uh, and we ruin beautiful walks around long green patches of grass by hitting a ball around it. It's called golf. And um, there's some transaction too as well. I've got to pay to go there and then they let me on and you don't pay so they won't let you in. Uh, and uh, it's, a, it's a voluntary association. And the problem that we have set ourselves is, well, what's the church? Where does the church fit in? It's it's not your biological family. It's, it's not just a bunch of friends. It's not an employment, well, at least for most of you. It's just a voluntary association. You turn up when you feel like it. If it's good for you, you stay. If it's not, you don't. except that's not how it is. And so we're setting ourselves, as I say, the task of figuring out if the church is not biological family, it's not just a group of friendships, it's not an employment relationship, and it's not a voluntary association, what is it? What is the church? We began by looking at the church's nature, uh, the sort of centrality of the church, that the church is not just a free set of steak knives that you get, along with having a private religion where you get to be right with God and God's your father and you're his child, and um, there's this other thing called the church. If it's useful to you, that's great. Uh, but otherwise, it's, just the, it's the added on extra. And we said, no, the church is the body of Christ. Christ is the head of the body. You can't have the head without having the body. That's the nature of the church, sort of central. We looked last week at the church's character, which is that because salvation is by grace, church is by grace. It's this weird community. A weird community because it's got no criteria to it. You don't have to perform or measure up to standards or deliver or be useful or contribute in order to belong. Just like God accepts you without criteria, without performance standards. So we're to be a community that is also the no-criteria community as we're saved by grace, so we do church by grace. And today we move on to... Uh, the church's foundation, which we're calling a community of orthodoxy, a community of orthodoxy. We uh, ended last week um, with this uh, remarkable statement by the Apostle Paul, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. And um, the Apostles describing here the foundation of the church as the apostles and prophets. Uh, but the apostles and prophets are themselves just the, the deep foundations. This building actually has extremely deep foundations. When it was built, this is a little free history lesson for you. When this building was being built in 1840, uh, the colonial architect uh, Blackett came along and said the found- this is built on clay. And he said the foundations are not deep enough. Tear it down and start again. And that was a little bit depressing, as you can imagine. But it meant that when they did it, they built down foundations so that when we built the ministry centre next door, which goes all the way down a whole story, we could not find the bottom of the foundations. So this church has got really, really deep. We're talking eight, maybe eight metres of foundations. And that's why 180-something years down the track, it's still standing. Deep foundations. And somewhere, if it's a good building, it'll have a cornerstone. And a cornerstone means it's a, it's a beautifully right-angled Stone. It's a perfect right angle this way and this way and this way and this way, and it's that cornerstone that sets the pattern and structure and direction for the whole rest of the building. And the apostle says that the church is built on deep foundations of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Uh, he clarifies that immediately as he goes on in chapter 3. And he says, this is the reason that I, Paul, am a prisoner for Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And then he realizes, actually, maybe I forgot to introduce myself properly beforehand. So I'm going to take a moment. And he he pauses and goes off on a bit of a tangent and says, for surely you have already heard about me. You know who I am, right? I'm the Apostle Paul. You have heard of the commission of God's grace that was given me for you and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I wrote above in a few words, a reading of which will enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. In former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now, the, the apostles is very clear that um, God is a mystery. Um, there are endless human attempts to figure God out. Uh, Every religion is an attempt to figure God out. Most people have theories about God. Uh, Those theories are profoundly influenced by their culture, of course, and their situation. And most people think they're being highly original by having exactly the same view as the person next door to them. Um, There's endless attempts to theorize about God. And the apostle says, actually, they're all as successful, or perhaps you might say unsuccessful as each other. It's a God is a mystery. You are never going to know God unless, unless there's Christmas. You're never going to know God. You'll never know the first thing about God unless there's Christmas, which is that God himself turns up in the person of his son when the mystery is revealed, the mystery of God, who he is, what he's doing, what his purposes are. And, and the apostle says, and, you, you know, you've got to decide whether you accept this or not, right? This is, in a sense, um, uh, is a claim that he's making. It's a contestable claim that Jesus appeared to Paul and commissioned him to be his apostle. And, of course, not just Paul, but the other apostles uh, as well. But in, in, in Paul's particular case, revealed to him on the road to Damascus, And so he begins the letter by saying, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And his claim is that that he he doesn't just write kind of random thoughts. He's not like you writing a letter of encouragement to someone which might have some interesting things to say. that He's been specifically, personally commissioned to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, a sent one by Jesus Christ and that that's in accordance with the will of God and that this mystery that the Apostle reveals has some content to it. Namely, this here it is, that the Gentiles, Hungarians, Anglos, Arabs, whatever it might be, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The foundation of the church (coughs) is the truth the truth claim, the content of the gospel, the gospel which is brought to us through the apostles as they themselves obey their commission from Jesus Christ. So let's just pause and, and, and ask a question, what does it mean to say that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone? What it means is that who we are, um, what we are as a church, uh, what our origin is, what our purpose is, what our destiny is, what our pattern is, is all given to us from outside. Uh, It's given to us from beyond ourselves. We don't get to make it up. We don't get to decide what kind of church we want to be. That's all given to us. We don't constitute ourselves. Um, every club that gets together writes a constitution. And what it is doing in writing its constitution is describing its pattern and way of life and objects and purpose, membership and criteria, And what it is to say that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone is to say we don't get to do that. I mean sure you know because of legal requirements we have a constitution and blah 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 but that's all trivial and secondary stuff. If there was no law then we'd still have the church. We're not constituted by our constitution. We're constituted by Jesus Christ. And to be built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a cornerstone means that he gives us our life and our pattern, our constitution, our membership rules, and so on. Or as the Apostle Paul writes at the start of chapter 4, he says, make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, right? That's a grace point. If you've been lumped together as uh, family and as citizens and as Uh, bricks to make up the building of God where he dwells, especially remember that from last week. If that's And that's all part of grace. And that means you're bound together in a unity. Then Paul says, maintain, not not achieve it. You don't achieve unity because it's a gift to us. It's a given. Maintain it. Don't break it. Don't shatter it. Don't let problems enter and, and force it apart. Make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's above all and through all and in all. The church, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone, is built on this great truth one faith, one hope. One calling, one God and Father of all. And we, we, we don't have, it's not up to us. We don't have the freedom, we don't have the power, we don't have the authority to mess with that. We don't decide about it. It's a given to us. It's a given to us. Uh, I don't know if you saw the uh, SBS article this week uh, on Wednesday, a really interesting article about a person being a member of a church, grew up as a member of a church, and then left the church and writes quite movingly, uh, quote, organised religion had been the vehicle for community building for centuries. I uh, Lived quite a successful life and was uh, you know, doing quite well and, and et cetera, et cetera, and buying a house and all the you know, good things that you're supposed to do as a uh, 21st century Australian. And, um, but realised there was something missing in his life. He didn't have community. And so he goes on, we chucked the baby out with the bathwater and lost our community building when we moved away from religion. We'd become isolated units that came together for hobbies or interests, right? That's the, um, uh, you know, uh, association, a voluntary association. Uh, and he writes, he lives in Canberra, he says, Canberra's no shortage of them, but not overshared values. And so he, he tries to launch a church without a foundation. I, you know, I just think it's a noble effort. Good on him for having a go. And he called it Sunday Assembly Canberra. What's really great about that is the word for assembly is just the same word as the word church. Uh, so so he's, it, he's calling it Sunday church, Canberra, except he didn't, couldn't call it church because we already got that word, so he called it Sunday assembly. But it only lasted a few months. And in, he, he reflects on why that is. He says, we lacked the substantive underpinnings, the deeper structure... He says, the organisational foundations to keep all the pieces connected and engaged. Each Sunday assembly was like a standalone episode. It wasn't really a series. Uh, I don't think he's quite diagnosed the problem, but he's, he's reaching for something, which he wants a community, but without a content. And what I'm saying to you is that that's never going to work, and it's not what the church is. We are a church that's built on a content, the gospel. The foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus Himself as the cornerstone. What this means—it's a very significant implication. It means that we are first and foremost listening people. So some people talk, and they—some people think by talking. Some of my very best friends are like that. uh, Me, and um, so so some people talk a lot, and other people are not so. You know, they'd rather listen. Um, But the posture of being Christian and the posture of the church. Because our nature and constitution is given to us from outside of ourselves, we don't talk first. We shut up and we listen. We're a listening community. That's why our services are structured around the word of God. The word of God is just dripping through all the times when we gather as a community and express and enact our life together Uh, The centrepiece of a service is all to do with the word of God, whether that's in the confession of sin, whether that's in the declaration of faith, whether it's in the uh, scripture reading and and, um, sermon that goes with it, whether it's in the sacrament, which is just an enacted word, a word not with with breath but with with symbols, a word of God's grace. But it's not just, of course, our life on Sunday. It applies to our life uh, all during the week. Uh, our fellowship groups are n- not only fellowship groups they're more than fellowship groups they have to have the word of God central to their life if, the, if, a, if a group of Christians meets for the purpose of encouraging and strengthening each other as Christians and doesn't have the Bible at the centre of that experience then they've turned from listeners into talkers and do you know what I know that you have really interesting ideas they just don't matter I'm, I'm I say that because I say it to myself first. I actually have more interesting ideas. (laughs) And they matter even less. Because what we are is not a product of our interesting ideas. It's given to us in the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as a cornerstone, the gospel, the one faith, the one hope. This is called orthodoxy orthodoxy. It's a word, I don't know whether you're familiar with the word, it comes from two Greek words, ortho, which means right, and doxy, which means praise. And what's a very interesting um, thing that the the way we've chosen to describe the truth content that is at the foundation of the church is right praise of God. Not right thoughts about God, not right ideas about, although, it, of course, it is right ideas, it is right thoughts, but it's right praise of God. And, and when you think about it, that makes a lot of sense because the structure of the one hope and the one faith is that God has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And so the, 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 the basic stance of the Christian community is to listen and to whoop. Now, we're Anglicans. So we're not much good at the listening and we're not much good at the whooping either, actually, now that I think about it. We like to argue and talk and then we like to just sort of be demure. But I'm going to encourage, we're going to say the, uh, the Nicene Creed later on. And, and that's a confession of orthodoxy. That's a, a moment of praise. And we did this this morning. Uh, it, was, it was frankly lame. But I'm going to encourage you to whoop in the creed. Yeah! Come on! Thank you. Do I get it? No, no. See, you guys are hopeless, actually. But that's, that's what this is about. The truth content of the gospel elicits from us enormous praise because it's all about what God has done for us and then he speaks it to us. And our response is to listen and whoop. That's who we are as a church. And, of course, as a listening community, then we become a speaking community. And the apostle talks about speaking to one another in love, not tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, right? Because we're not going to be blown about. We want a foundation. When you are got a foundation, you don't get blown about. Not by people's trickery and craftiness and deceitful scheming, but we speak the truth in love. And and the way that will work is that in a moment we're going to confess that there is One holy Catholic and apostolic church. The fact that we are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets means that there's one holy Catholic. uh, We we usually swap out the word universal. I'll explain that in a moment. One holy Catholic and apostolic church. There's only one church. Ultimately, there might be many denominations, and that's fine, and there might be lots of branches, uh, and that's cool too because there's just lots of people and we can't all fit into one stadium. So there needs to be lots of buildings and lots of... But, but actually underneath the different bits of us, that there's just one church. There's not two churches, and that makes sense, doesn't it? Because there's not two Jesuses. It's only one Christ, and so there can only be one body of Christ. The church. And it's holy because it belongs to God. That's what holy means. The church is holy and belongs to God, and therefore the most important thing about that is that it doesn't belong to us. It doesn't belong to you. It certainly doesn't belong to me. As a senior minister of the church, it doesn't belong to bishops or archbishops, it doesn't belong to denominations, it doesn't belong to popes. It's holy because it belongs to God. And so we don't get to mess with it. You might not like some things that are in the truth of the gospel. I get that. That's how relationships work, isn't it? That people get to, if you don't have disagreements in a relationship at some point or other in time, I mean... Is the other person actually alive? God has the right to disagree with you, don't you think? And when that happens, what happens next is you say, thank you, Lord, for correcting me. So the church being holy means you don't get to mess with it. We don't change things because of our feelings or because of our culture. It's holy to God. And it's Catholic, uh, Catholic, we translate that word um, so associated with the Roman church, uh, that it was the Roman Catholic church. that We've, tend, we've just basically decided that it's a lost cause to try and keep it. But it's actually a really great word. It, it means literally of the whole. It means that um, although the church looks and feels differently, sometimes it plays a pipe organ, sometimes it plays in a band, sometimes it just sings without instruments, sometimes it's in Hungarian and sometimes it's in English, and there's all sorts of difference, but underneath... There's something that's the same in each place. What what do you think that would be? The apostles and the prophets who bring us Christ Jesus, who's the cornerstone. It's universal. And then um, the final, um, what's called note of the church, is that it's apostolic. If it departs from apostolic teaching, it ceases to be a church. Hear the seriousness of that, won't you? If a community departs from apostolic teaching, it ceases to be a church because there is only one holy, Catholic and apostolic church. So I've I've, uh, just laid out the implications of what is to be built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and I've said that what that culminates in is this thing called orthodoxy and I, I wonder whether you're yet getting a bit nervous And squirming, because the problem with orthodoxy is that orthodoxy means two other things. Orthodoxy brings with it two other ideas heterodoxy and heresy. Heterodoxy, if orthodoxy is right praise of God, heterodoxy is wrong praise of God. The fact that there is orthodoxy means that there is heterodoxy. The fact that there's a right praise of God means that it's possible to praise God in a way that is wicked. That's heterodoxy. And at the same time, there's a second category, which is heresy. A heresy we mostly think of as stuff that's wrong, and there's truth in that, but mostly the whole idea of heresy is that uh, I make it up myself, that I take upon myself the right to speak instead of adopting the posture of listening, that I take it upon myself to be the one who uh, delivers instead of the one who receives. Heresy is the posture of the heart which says, I can make it up myself. I can decide. And uh, are are you nervous now? Because as soon as you start introducing the ideas of heterodoxy and of heresy and the church being founded on orthodoxy, we're all too aware of the way that that can function as a weapon. We can weaponize the reality that the church has to be founded on the apostles and the prophets with Christ, Jesus Himself as a cornerstone, in becoming anti-grace. Do you see? If you think that grace and truth function like a seesaw, right? We so often put two things together, we think they go like a seesaw. Lots of grace means don't worry too much about truth going goodness sake, just be just be welcoming and kind and inclusive. Can't you just be inclusive? Being truthful, valiant for truth, means being narky and exclusionary. But what if it didn't work like that? What if there's one truth which is full of grace? And what if there's one grace that's full of truth in such a way that truth and grace Along together maximally. And so the church has come up with ways of trying to hold grace and truth together, to handle truth gracefully. Uh, you, you may know that in the prologue of John's Gospel, in the, the first uh, chapter, Jesus is introduced as one who is full of grace and truth. And it's such a profound statement because uh in Jesus, truth need not be sacrificed for grace and grace need not be sacrificed for truth. How's that going to play out in the life of the church? And um, I'm going to just talk briefly about two strategies that uh, we use uh, in this regard. The first is that we distinguish between what you might call first-order and second-order issues. Okay, so have you, have you heard this before? That one, one way to sort of not fight about stuff is to say, well, there's first-order issues, gospel issues, they're the really important things, and then there's second-order stuff, which just we, we don't know so much about. We don't have to fight about. First-order issues are key truths which are essential to the structure of the gospel. And what the church has done historically is to define that in terms of the creeds. The Apostles' Creed, the shorter version, uh, the Apostles' Creed is the creed that you say at your baptism. It's a personal confession of faith. It has, it's an I statement, I believe. Have you you noticed that, by the way? The Nicene Creed is a longer statement. It's it's a corporate statement of the faith of the church as a whole. It's just a little more detailed. It says the same thing, of course, as as the Apostles' Creed, but it's a we statement, we believe. And and we we say normally the Apostles' Creed each week, but on communion nights we say the Nicene Creed and um, we'll say the Nicene Creed tonight, we believe. And I'm reminding you, it'll be a little louder than at other times because we're going to do some orthodoxing. Um, the creed set out who God is, Father, Son and Spirit, what he's done for us and for our salvation and how it applies to us by his Spirit, who is the Lord, the giver of life, who has spoken and brings Christ to us and called the one holy Catholic and apostolic church into being. And then there's second order issues, what's not essential or not specified. And there's three sorts of second order issues uh, uh, that I can think of. One is there's something about which the Bible speaks a little bit but not decisively. Uh, should there be bishops or should there be voting by the people? I don't care, actually. You've got to pick one system, and so that's why we have denominations, actually, because some people will pick one of those systems and then you can't if you do it one way, you can't do it another way. And so you pick a system, and I think denominations are good. Denominations are ways of saying, we're going to do it this way, we're happy for you to do it some other way, but we're going to do it this way because you've got to do it some way. Uh, Should you be baptised in a pool or with a hose? I don't care. Doesn't matter, does it? Should you be baptised as a baby or as an adult? I do care. I care a little bit but not actually very much not very much I can cope either way because it's not a first order issue so sometimes the bible just doesn't give you enough information to say one way or tother some things the bible is completely silent about computers how much screen time should you have answer less than you're currently doing whatever it is just do less right because it's bad for your brain but that's wisdom That's not gospel issue. And then there are some things about which the Bible is clear, but I'm going to call it reserved. So it is a gospel truth that the universe is not eternal. It is a gospel truth that the universe is a creation of God and not eternal. Maker of all, seen and unseen. That's a gospel truth. The reason it's a gospel truth is that if the universe is eternal like God is eternal, then it would make sense to worship some part of the universe. And then that would be not worshipping your creator. So that's why. But how old is the universe? I don't care. I mean, you might think that someone yelled out in this morning 14 billion years old and good on them. And they know a lot more about whatever that subject is than I do. Uh, And other people think that they can count generations in the Bible. I don't know why they think they can do that, but they do. And they think that it's 4,000 and something BC. And I don't care. Uh, You can be a theistic evolutionist or you can be a six-day creationist. Both have got challenges. The Bible says there is a core truth in that, which is the universe is not eternal. And if we can agree on that, then let's just have interesting conversations over coffee on the other stuff but not fight because it's a secondary issue. Now, that's a really good way of doing things, primary issues, secondary issues, but, but have you noticed that there's a gap there? There's the truths of the creed, there's the secondary issues, but then but it, there's a whole part of life that it doesn't really deal with, that, that categorization, which is how we live, how we behave. And so the, I want to suggest that the Bible has a third category as well, which is what's called uh, I will call disqualifying issues. And disqualifying issues are crucial to community. The apostle writes in chapter 4, verse 17, Now this I affirm and insist on in the Lord, you must no longer live as the Gentiles live, in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance and hardness of heart. They've lost all sensitivity and abandoned themselves to licentiousness, Greedy to practice every kind of impurity, this is not the way you learn Christ. See, the, the really important thing here is that learning Christ is not only about the content of the gospel and ideas and truths, it's also and ultimately about life itself and how you live life. And so, disqualifying issues that is, ways of being and living and talking and acting that constitutes sin which unrepented of cut you off from Christ also become part of what we need to live out in the community of Christ's church uh, the essence here is you notice i said that very carefully the essence is repentance Because all of us don't live as we've learned Christ every week, I suspect. Every day, I suspect. It's one of the reasons why we always have a confession at church. And with the confession a declaration of forgiveness. Because that's the structure of the gospel, isn't it? God calls us to himself. We hear his call. It's a call of grace. In confidence, we repent towards him. And then he says back, it's finished, it's done, there's a line, it's gone, it's washed, you're washed, it's over. But unrepented of sin sticks and accumulates and drags And in the end, will cut us off from Christ. And so we care for each other. And we exercise that very delicate, very important, deep act of love, which is help each other to repent. To help each other to repent. So the first strategy that we try to make handling Uh, truth graceful, is by distinguishing first-order and second-order issues. And then we've noted that we need to also have these other disqualifying issues in there, which is where behaviour fits in. And the second strategy is that we hold a higher standard uh, for leaders in the church. Uh, It's very interesting. I say from time to time, just to sort of mess with your minds, that I hope that the moral standard of our gatherings and the people in our gatherings is actually fairly low. I think that would be a really good thing, don't you? If, you? if you could get a Geiger counter that would give you your, you know, your actual moral status. I, I, I really hope that there'd be a quite a low moral status in the church. Don't you, don't you hope that too? Because what that would mean is that there'd be lots of people who had really messed up lives, who were finding out about God in Jesus Christ in church and visiting church and coming to church a little bit and checking things out and on their way, on their journey. That's the kind of church you want, isn't it? Not just a a, a kind of club for people who've got their act together. That would be a terrible thing, wouldn't it? No, no, the gospel is for people who don't. Jesus has nothing to do with people who are well. You remember that? He's only interested in people who are sick. We want sick people here. And at the same time, it's also true that Um, Leaders are called to be those who are exemplary uh, in their repentance and hold on to the truths of the gospel, the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a cornerstone in a substantive way. Uh, This is a hard topic. We're saying that the foundation of the church is truth, truth which then stands in contrast to error and that truth matters. And we're trying to do something that's especially difficult, which is to hold together what we're seeing this week with what we looked at last week, which is, like Jesus Christ, to hold truth and grace at the same time, in the same place, in a way that's mutually reinforcing rather than undermining of either one. How does that work? Well, it only works because the gospel is the gospel of the cross. Because the cross is where the truth of our condition in sin is exposed and it's also the place where the grace to heal our condition is actioned. It's the cross that holds together truth and grace perfectly so that they're not alternatives to each other, they rise together. Because grace without truth is just sentimentality. Grace without truth would need no cross. If there was possible to have grace without truth, you'd be saying that Jesus was a fool an idiot, why would he need to die if there was grace without truth? And at the same time, truth without grace is just bullying. The cross is the place of sacrifice, the exact opposite of bullying. It's only in the cross that we find the strength to be both full of grace and full of truth at the same time. That's what Jesus was. That's what we're called to be as a church. And as the reality of the cross fills us, and as it becomes more and more a power, a dynamic, a dynamite that's at work in us, so as the apostle prays at the end of chapter 3 of Ephesians, we'll be able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we ask or imagine in Jesus' name. And when that happens, there'll be glory to God. There'll be glory to God in the church, to all generations in Christ Jesus, in our church forever and ever. Amen.